Sundays are the kind of day when you can be more thorough in what you're reading. So we're going to read, uh, continue reading the journals, best of the journals of Henry David Thoreau. And with our seven-day challenge, we're trying to get through seven years and seven days with 18, we're on 1855, second half of 1855, June 2nd. Still windier than before, and yet no rain. It is now very dry indeed, and the grass is suffering. Some springs commonly full at this season are dried up. The wind shakes the house night and day. From that cocoon of the Atticus Cecropia, which I found, I think it was on the 24th of May, on a red maple shrub, three or four feet above from the ground, on the edge of the meadow, by the new Bedford Road, just the side of Beckstow's, came out this forenoon, a splendid moth. Uh -huh. He had a cocoon, he said. And out came a splendid moth. Uh -huh. I had pinned the cocoon to the sash at the out upper part of my window and quite forgotten it. Hmm. About the middle of the forenoon, Sophia came in and exclaimed that there was a moth on my window. Sophia is that his sister. She is the devoted sister, and she was quite transcendental. At first I supposed that she meant a, a cloth-eating moth, but it turned out that my A. Cecropia had come out and dropped down to the window sill where it hung on the side of a slipper, which was inserted into another to let its wings hang down and develop themselves. At first the wings were not only not unfolded laterally, but not longitudinally, the thinner ends of the forward ones for perhaps three-quarters of an inch being very feeble and occupying very little space. It was surprising to see the creature unfold and expand before our eyes, the wings gradually elongating as it were, by their own gravity, and from time to time the insect assisted this operation by a slight shake. It was wonderful how it waxed and grew, revealing some new beauty every fifteen minutes, which I called Sophia to see, but never losing its hold on the shoe. You'd think this would have been very popular on Facebook if he posted it, <laughs> showing the beauty of nature. <laughs> it looked like a young emperor, just donning the most splendid ermine robes. <laughs> Here we have the young emperor. <laughs> to him, what is a young emperor? The young emperor, just donning the most splendid ermine robes that ever emperor wore, the wings every moment acquiring greater expansion and their 
At first, a wrinkled edge becoming more tense. At first, its wings appeared double, one within the other. At last, it advanced so far as to spread its wings completely but feebly when we approached. This occupied several hours. It continued to hang to the shoe, and its wings ordinarily closed erect behind its back. The rest of the day, and at dusk, when apparently it was waving its wings preparatory to its evening flight, I gave it either, and so saved it in a perfect state. Uh oh, he's saving it. As it lies, not spread to the utmost, it is five and nine-tenths inches by two and a quarter. Five and nine-tenths inches. Huh? Five inches. Pretty long, pretty big moth. Huh? June 18th at 3 p.m. I, as I walked up the bank by the hemlocks, uh, I saw a painted tortoise just beginning its hole, then another dozen rods from the river on the bare, barren field near some pitch pines where the earth was covered with cardonias and sankfold and sorrel. Its hole was about two-thirds done. I stooped down over it, and to my surprise, after a slight pause, it proceeded in its work, directly under and within eighteen inches of my face. I retained a constrained position for three-quarters of an hour. Jerry spends long time periods looking at animals and, and moths. Three-quarters of an hour or more, for fear of alarming it, it rested on its forelegs, the front part of its shell, about one inch higher than the rear, and this position was not changed essentially to the last. The hole was oval, broadest behind, about one inch wide, and one and three-quarters long, and the dirt already removed was quite wet or moistened. It made the hole and removed the dirt with its hind legs only, not using its tail or shell, which last, of course, could not enter the hole. Though there was some dirt on it, it first scratched two or three times with one hind foot, then took up a pinch of the loose sand and deposited it directly behind that leg, pushing it backward to its full length, and then deliberately opening it and letting the dirt fall. Then the same with the other hind foot. This it did rapidly, using each leg alternate, alternately with perfect irregularity, standing on the other one the while, and thus tilting up its shell each time. Now to the side, then to that. There was half a minute or a minute between each change. The hole was made as deep as the foot could reach, or about two inches. It was very neat about its work not scattering the dirt any more, about any more than was necessary. The completing of the hole occupied perhaps five minutes. It then, without any pause, drew its head completely into its shell, raised the rear a little, and protruded 
and dropped a wet, fresh-colored egg into the hole. <laughs> He's got a turtle laying an egg here. One and foremost, the red skin of its body being considerably protruded with it. Then it put out its head again a little slowly and placed the egg at one side with one hind leg foot. After a delay of about two minutes, it again drew in its head and dropped another, and so on to the fifth, drawing in its head each time and pausing somewhat longer between the last. The eggs were placed in the hole without any particular care only well down flat, and each one out of the way of the next, and I could plainly see them from above. Uh -huh. hmm. He's watching a turtle lay eggs. Do you have that kind of patience? <laughs> After these ten minutes or more, it, without pause or turning, began to scrape the moist earth into the hole with its hind legs, and when it had half filled it, it carefully pressed it down with the edges of its hind feet, dancing on them alternatively for some time as on its knees, tilting from side to side, pressing by the whole weight of the rear of its shell, when it had drawn in thus all the earth that had been moistened, it stretched its hind legs further back into each side and drew in the dry lichen-clad crust, and then danced upon and pressed them down, still not moving the rear of its shell more than an inch to right or left, all the while, and changing the position of the front-forward part of it at all. The thoroughness. Uh, we're reading about the thoroughness of Henry David Thoreau. And when he observes turtles laying eggs, the thoroughness with which the covering was done was remarkable. Hmm. It persevered in drawing in and dancing on the dry surface which had never been disturbed so long after you thought it had done its duty, but it never moved its four feet, nor once looked around, nor saw the eggs it had laid. There were frequent pauses throughout the hole, when it rested and ran out its head, and looked about circumspectly at any noise or motion. These pauses were especially long during the covering of its eggs, which occupied more than half an hour. Perhaps it was hard work. Interesting how he spends his time. <laughs> when it was done, it immediately started for the river at a pretty rapid rate. The suddenness with which it made these transitions was amazing, pausing from time to time, and I judged that it would reach it in fifteen minutes. It was not easy to detect that the ground had been disturbed there. An Indian could not have made his cache more skillfully. In a few minutes, all traces of it would be lost to the eye. The object of moistening the earth was perhaps to enable it to take it up 
in its hands? Question mark. And also to prevent it falling back into the hole. Perhaps it also helped to make the ground more compact and harder than it was when it was pressed down. That's all about... Well, that's June 18th is all about the turtle laying an egg and the thoroughness of it. August 10th, middle of huckleberrying. That's the whole entry. Just middle of huckleberrying. It's a short... That middle of huckleberry must mean it's in the middle of blueberry picking around August 10th. <laughs> so now we know when to go pick berries. <laughs> October 2nd. Returning along the shore, we saw a man and woman putting off in a small boat. The first we had seen, the man was black. He rode and the woman steered. Our Daniel Ricketson called to them. They approached within a couple of rods in the shallow water. Come near, quote, come nearer, unquote, said R. Ricketson. Quote, don't be afraid, I ain't going to hurt you, unquote. The woman answered, quote, I never saw the man yet that I was afraid of, unquote. The man's name was Thomas Smith. <laughs> you think he's a relative or... <laughs> Tom, we don't know. The man's name was Thomas Smith, and in answer to ours, that is Ricketson, very direct question as to how much he was of the native stock, said that he was one-fourth Indian. He then asked the woman who sat unmoved in the stern with a brown dirt-colored dress on, and a regular countrywoman with half an acre of face squall-like, having first inquired of Tom if she was his woman, how much Indian blood she had in her. She did not answer directly so home a question, yet at length, as good as acknowledged to one-half Indian. Now, he's a quarter Indian, and she's one-half. And said that she came from Carver where she had a sister and the only half-breeds about here. Said her name was Seepit, but could not spell it. R said, quote, Your nose looks rather Indian-y. Where will you find a Yankee and a wife going a-fishing thus? They lived on the shore. Tom said he had seen turtles in the pond that way between fifty and sixty had caught a pickerel that morning that weighed four or five pounds. <laughs> had also seen them washed up with another in their mouths. Until <laughs> he met an Indian. October 12th. Carried home a couple of rails which I fished out of the bottom of the river and left on the bank to dry about three weeks ago. One was a chestnut which I had have noticed for some years on the bottom of the anise at Asabet, just about the spring on the east side in a deep hole. The 
It looked as if it had been there a hundred years. It was so heavy that C and I had as much as we could do to lift it, covered with mud, onto the high bank. It was scarcely lighter today, and I amused myself with asking several to lift one half of it after I had sawed it in two. They failed at first, not being prepared to find it so heavy. Though they could easily lift it afterward, it was a regular segment of a log. And though the thin edge was competitively firm and solid, the sapwood on the bottom rounded side, now that it had been lying in the air, was quite spongy and had opened into numerous great chinks. C-H-I-N-K. Five-eighths of an inch wide by an inch deep. The hole was of a rusty brown externally, having imbibed some iron from the water. When split up, it was of a dark blue-black, if split parallel with the layers, or alternatively, alternately black and light brown, if split across them. There were concentric circles of black, as you looked at the end, coinciding nearly with the circles of pores, perhaps one-sixteenth of an inch wide. When you looked at these on the side of a stick split across the circles, they reminded you of a striped waistcoat or sheepskin, but after being exposed to the air a little while, the whole turned to an almost uniform pale slate color, the white brown turning slate and the dark stripes also paling into slate. It had a strong dye, stuff-like scent, etc. The other was a round oak stick, and although it looked almost as old as the first, was quite sound, even to the bark, and evidently quite Recent comparatively, though full as heavy, the wood had acquired some peculiar color. Some farmers load their wood with gunpowder to punish thieves. <laughs> There's no danger that mine would be loaded. <laughs> Pieces of both of these sank at once in a pail of water. <clears throat> His logs were out <clears throat> from out of the water, so they couldn't be <clears throat> loaded with gunpowder. October 18th, how much beauty and decay, I pick up a white oak leaf, dry and stiff, yet mingled the red and green. October-like, whose pulpy part some insect has eaten beneath, exposing the delicate network of its veins. It is very beautiful, held up to the light. Such work as only an insect eye could perform, yet perchance... To the vegetable kingdom, such a revelation of ribs is as repulsive as the skeleton in an animal kingdom. In each case, it is some little gourmand working for another end that reveals the wonders of nature. There are countless oak leaves in this condition now and also with a submarginal line of network exposed. <clears throat> Now he's observing the decay of beauty. How much beauty in decay. You think there's beauty in decay? <clears throat> October 23rd. Now is the time for chestnuts. <laughs> now we know when to get chestnuts. 
on October 23rd, and the middle period for huckleberrying was August 10th. Now is the time for chestnuts. October 23rd, a stone cast against the trees shakes them down in showers upon one's head and shoulders. But I cannot excuse myself for using the stone. It is not innocent. It is not just. So to maltreat the tree that feeds us. I am not disturbed by considering that. If I thus shorten its life, I shall not enjoy its fruit so long. But am prompted to a more innocent course by modus per purely of humanity. I sympathize with the tree, yet I heaved a big stone against the trunk like a robber. <laughs> Do you think it's okay to slam rocks against the chestnut tree to get the chestnuts? <laughs> I sympathize with the tree, yet I heaved a big stone against the trunks like a robber, not too good to commit murder. I trust that I shall never do it again. These gifts should be accepted, not merely with gentleness, but with a certain humble gratitude. I think we should maybe be more grateful for the chestnuts. The tree whose fruit we would obtain should not be too rudely shaken even. It is not a time of distress, when a little haste and violence even must might be pardoned. It is worse than boorish. It is criminal to inflict an unnecessary injury on the tree that feeds or shadows uh, shades us. Old trees are our parents, and our parents' parents, perchance. Uh, old trees are our parents. Uh, we should have more respect for them. Do you think they should have the right to vote? Uh, if I would learn the secrets of nature, we must practice more humanity than others. The thought that I was robbing myself by injuring the tree did not occur to me, but I was affected as if I had cast a rock at the sentient being with a dull sense in my own. It is true, but yet a distant relation. Behold a man cutting down a tree to come at the fruit. What is the moral of such an act? Now we... Hmm. November 5th, I know many children to whom I would fain make a present on some one of their birthdays, but they are so far gone in the luxury of presents, have such perfect museums of costly ones, that it would absorb my entire earnings for a year to buy them something which would not be beneath their notice. I guess the children uh, got already got everything. <laughs> November 7th. I find it good to be out this still, dark, mizzling afternoon. Do you go out on mizzling afternoons? M-I-C-Z-L-I-N-G. My walk or voyage is more suggestive and profitable than in bright weather. The view is contracted by the misty rain. 
The water is perfectly smooth and the stillness is favorable to reflection. I am more open to impressions, more sensitive, not calloused or indurated by sun and wind, as if in a chamber still. My thoughts are concentrated. I am all compact. The solitude is real. Two. You think the solitude is more real on a mizzling afternoon? The solitude is real too, for the weather keeps other men at home. This mist is like a roof and walls over and around, and I walk with a domestic feeling. That's sort of like how you go out for a walk in the rain, or you go in a snowstorm, and you can... The solitude is more real. The sound of a wagon going over an unseen bridge is louder than ever, and so of other sounds. I am compelled to look at near objects. All things have a soothing effect. The very clouds and mist brood over me. My power of observation and contemplation is much increased. My attention does not wander. The world of my life are simplified. What now of Europe and Asia? I guess that's on the quiet and solitude of the simplified, mizzling afternoon. November 9th. I deal so much with my fuel. What with finding it, loading it, conveying it home, sowing and splitting it, get so many values out of it, and warmed in so many ways by it that the heat it will yield when in the stove is of a lower temperature and are lesser value in my eyes, though when I feel it, I am reminded of all my adventures. Do you think the going, the cutting, and the loading, and the thinking of gathering wood in the woods is more valuable than the actual heat from it? <laughs> You do get warmed up when you have to work. Oh. Hmm. I just turned to put on a stick. I had my choice in the box of gray chestnut rail. Black and brown snag of an oak stump. Dead white pine top, gray and round with stubs of limbs. Or else old bridge blank and chose the last. Yet I lost sight of the ultimate uses of this wood and work. The immediate ones uh, were so great, and yet most of mankind, those called most successful in obtaining the necessaries of life, getting their living, obtain none of this except a mere vulgar and perhaps stupefying warmth. Uh, I feel disposed to this extent to do the greater living and the living for any three or four or four of my neighbors who really want the fuel and will appreciate the act now that I have supplied myself. Do you think we would appreciate the warmth of the wood that we cut ourselves in the woods, up in the woods in our hut in the Adirondacks and the heat we get here? <laughs> I don't know. November 11th, 
the bricks of which the muskrat builds his house are little masses or wades of the dead weedy rubbish on the muddy bottom which it probably takes up with its mouth. It consists of various kinds of weeds. Now, agglutinated agglutinated together by the slime and dried conferma threads utracularia hornwort etc. A streaming tough like wad. The building of these cabins appears to be coincide with the commencement of their clam diet for now their vegetable food excepting roots is cut off. I see many small collections of shells already left along the river brink. Thither they resort with their clam to open and eat it. But if it is the edge of a meadow which is being overflowed, they must raise it and make a permanent dry stool. Therefore they cannot afford to swim far with each clam. I see where one has left half a peck of shells on perhaps the foundation of an old stoop stool or a harder quad, which the river is just about to cover, and he has begun his stool by laying two or three fresh wads upon the shells, the foundation of his house. Thus their cabin is first apparently intended merely for a stool, and the afterward, when it is large, is perforated, as if it were the bank. There is no cabin for a long way along the hemlocks, where there is no low meadow bordering the stream. November 17th. It is interesting to me to talk with Reuben Rice. He lives so thoroughly. He lives so thoroughly and satisfactorily to himself. He has learned that the rare, that rare art of living the very elements which most professors do not know. His life has been not a failure but a success. Seeing me going to sharpen some plain irons and hearing me complain of the want of tools, he said that I ought to have a chest of tools. But I said, it was not worth the while. I should not use them enough to pay for them. Well, you would use them more if you had them, he said. Do you think if you have tools, you have to use them, or you would use them more if you had them? You would use them more if you had them, he said. When I came to do a piece of work, I used to find commonly that I wanted a certain tool, and I made it a rule first always to make that tool. I have spent as much as $3,000 thus on my tools. God, that's a lot of money. Comparatively speaking, his life is a success, not such a failure as most men's. He gets more out of any prize than his neighbors, for he helps himself more and hires less. Whatever pleasure there is in it, he enjoys. By good sense and calculation, he has become rich, and has invested his property well, yet practices a fair and neat economy deal, dwells not in untidy luxury. It cost him less to live, and he gets more out of life than others. To get his living and keep it is not a hasty and disagreeable toil. He works slowly but surely, enjoying the sweet of it. 
He buys a piece of meadow at a probable rate and works at it in pleasant weather. He and his son, when they are inclined, goes a-fishing and a-bee-hunting and a-rifle-shooting quite as often. And thus the meadow gets redeemed and the potatoes get planted perchance and he is very sure to have a good crop stored in his cellar in the fall and some to sell. He always has the best potatoes there in the same spirit in which he and his son tackle. Up there Dobbin, he never keeps a fast horse and goes a-spearing or a-fishing through the ice. They also tackle up and go to the Sidberry farm to hoe and or harvest a little, and when they return they bring home a load of stumps in their hay ricking which impeded their labors, but perchance supply them with their winter wood. All the woodchucks they shoot or trap in the bean field are brought home also. And thus their life is a long sport, and they know not what hard times are. He's talking about Reuben Rice. He's somebody who has learned the rare art of living much more than a professor. Hmm. That was November 17th. November 18th, it is fouler and uglier to have too much than not to have enough. That's just, that's the whole entry. December 11th, p.m., to Holden Swamp, Conatum. For the first time I wear gloves, but I have not walked early this season. Well, that's December 11th. So he's wearing gloves. I see no birds, but here, methinks, one or two tree sparrows. No snow, scarcely any ice to be detected. It is only an aggravated November. I thread the tangle of the spruce swamp, admiring the leaflets of the swamp pyrus, which had put forth again, now snow-bitten, the great yellow buds of the swamp pink. The round red buds of the high blueberry and the fine sharp red ones of the panicled andromeda. Slowly I worm my way amid the snarl, the thicket of black alders and blueberry, etc. See the forms, apparently, of rabbits at the foot of maples and catbirds nest now exposed in the leafless thicket. Standing there, though, in this bare November landscape, I am reminded of the incredible phenomenon of small birds in winter that ere long, amid the cold, powdery snow, as it were, a fruit of the season will come twittering, a flock of delicate crimson-tinged birds, lesser red poles, poles to sport and feed on the seeds and buds now just ripe for them on the sunny side of the wood, shaking down the powdery snow from there, there in the cheerful social feeding as if it were high midsummer to them. These crimson aerial creatures have wings which would bear them quickly to the regions of summer, but here is all the summer they want. What a rich contrast, tropical colors, crimson breast, and cold white snow. Such etherealness, such delicacy in their form, such ripeness in their colors, in their stern and barren season. 
It is as surprising as if you were to find a brilliant crimson flower which flourished among snows. They greet the chopper and the hunter in their furs. Their maker gave them the last touch and launched them forth the day of the great snow. He made this bitter, imprisoning cold before which man quells, but he made at the same time these warm and glowing creatures to twitter, to twitter and to be at home in it. He said not only, let there be linnets in winter, but linnets of rich plumage and pleasing twitter, bearing summer in their natures. The snow will be feet deep, will be three feet deep, the ice will be two feet thick, and last night, perchance, the mercury sank to thirty degrees below zero. Wow. Thirty degrees below zero. <laughs> what happened? All the fountains of nature seemed to be sealed up. The traveler is frozen on his way, but under the edge of yonder birch wood will be a little flock of crimson-breasted lesser red poles busily feeding on the seeds of the birch and shaking down the powdery snow, as if a flower were created to be now in bloom, a peach to be now fully ripe on its stem. I am struck by the perfect confidence and success of nature. He's struck by it. I am struck by the perfect confidence and success of nature. There is no question about the existence of the delicate creatures, their aptness to their circumstances, adaptedness to their circumstances. There is super-added, superfluous paintings and adornments, a crystalline jewel-like health and soundness like the colors reflected from ice crystals. When some rare northern bird, like the pine goss beak, is thus Seen thus far south in the winter, he does not suggest poverty, but dazzles us with his beauty. There is in them a warmth akin to the warmth that melts the icicle. Think of these brilliant, warm-colored, and richly warbling birds, birds of paradise, daintly-footed, downy-clad in the midst of a New England, a Canadian winter. The woods and fields, now somewhat solitary, being deserted by their more tender summer residents, are now frequented by these rich but delicately tinted and hardly northern immigrants of the air. Here is no imperfection to be suggested. The winter, with its snow and ice, is not an evil to be corrected. It is as... It was designed and made to be, for the artist has had leisure to add beauty to use. My acquaintances, angels from the north, I had a vision thus perspectively of these birds as I stood in the swamps. I saw this familiar, too familiar fact at a different angle, and I was charmed and haunted by it. But I could only attain to be thrilled and enchanted as by the sound of a strain of music dying away. I had seen into a paradisiac, paradisiac regions with their air and sky, and I was no longer wholly or merely a denizen of this vulgar earth. Yet had I hardly a foothold there, I was only sure that I was charmed, and no mistake. 
It is only necessary to behold thus the least fact of or phenomenon, however familiar from a point a hair's breadth or aside from our habitual path or routine, to become overcome, enchanted by its beauty and insignificance. Only what we have touched and worn is trivial, our scuff, repetition, tradition, conformity. To perceive freshly with fresh senses is to be inspired. To perceive freshly with fresh senses is to be inspired. Great winter itself looked like a precious gem reflecting rainbow colors from one angle. My body is all sentient. As I go here or there, I am tickled by this or that I come in contact with as if I touch the wires of a battery. I can generally recall have fresh in my mind several scratches last received. These I continually recall to mind, re-impress, and harp upon. The age of miracles is each moment thus returned. Now it is wild apples, now river reflections, now a flock of lesser red poles. In winter, too, resides immortal youth and perennial summer. Its head is not silvered, its cheek is not blanched, but has a ruby tinge to it. If any part of nature excites our pity, it is for ourselves we grieve, for there is eternal health and beauty. We get only transient and partial glimpses of the beauty of the world. Standing at the right angle, we are dazzled by the colors of the rainbow and colorless ice from the right point of view. Every storm, every drop in it is a rainbow. Beauty and music are not mere traits and exceptions. They are the rule and character. It is exception that we see and hear. Then I try to discover what it was in the vision that charmed and translated me. What if we could tear Guryo type our thoughts and feelings? That means can't what if we could take a photograph of our thoughts and feelings? For I am surprised and enchanted often by some quality which I cannot detect. I have seen an attribute of another world and condition of things. It is a wonderful fact that I should be affected, and thus deeply and powerfully more than by awe else in all my experience that this fruit should be born to in me, sprung from a seed finer than the spores of fungi, floated from another atmospheres. Finer than the dust caught in the sails of vessels a thousand miles from land, here the invisible seeds settle and spring and bear flowers and fruits of immortal beauty. I think that was all from, uh, came from uh, one day. One day he says one sentence, the next day he says a lot. <laughs> December 11th. Now it's December 23rd. I admire those old root fences which have almost entirely disappeared from tidy fields. White pine roots got out when the neighboring meadow was a swamp, the monuments of many a revolution. These roots have not penetrated into the ground. 
but spread over the surface and having been cut off four or five feet from the stump were hauled off and set up on their edges for a fence. The roots are not merely interwoven but grown together into solid frames full of loopholes like gothic windows of various sizes and all shapes, triangular and oval and harp-like and the slenderer. Her parts are dry and resonant like harp strings. They are rough and unapproachable with a hundred snags and horns which be wilder and bulk the calculation of the walker who would surmount them. The part of the trees above ground presents no such fantastic forms. Here is only is one seven paces and more or more than a rod long, six feet high in the middle, and yet only one foot thick. And two men could turn it up, and in this case the roots were six and nine inches thick at the extremities. The roots of pines growing in swamps grow thus in the form of solid frames or rackets, and those of different trees are interwoven with all so that they stand on a very broad foot and stand or fall together to some extent before the blast as the herds meet the assault of beast of prey in surried front. You have thus only to dig into the swamp a little way to find your fence post, uh, trail, rails and slats already solidly grown together and of material more durable than any timber. How pleasing a thought that a field should be fenced with the roots of the trees got out in clearing the land a century ago. I regard them as mementos of the primitive forest. The tops of the same trees made in fencing stuff would have decayed generations ago. These roots are singularly unobnoxious to the effects of moisture. The end of 1855, we finished. That's, we read about the tree stumps and all the read about the woods. The beauty in music is not mere traits and exceptions. We read about mm, mm, the twitter of the birds and uh, mm, the old trees are our parents. <laughs> and he was shaking the getting how to get, collect your chestnuts uh, properly. And the solitude of a mizzling afternoon, <laughs> and the date to, the date you collect your chestnuts is October twenty third, and the date you collect your huckleberries is August tenth. And uh, we watched as the turtle laid its eggs, and we he found a splendid moth. So we read from June 2nd all the way through the end of 1855 in our thorough read of thorough in the, in the best of Thoreau's journals, edited with the foreword by Carl Body. Any comment? That leaves one less year we have to read. Uh-huh.